Our reading this afternoon is from Judges 6 and 7. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Bezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our, father recount, our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 20,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thanks be to God. Well, this afternoon we have Alex, who's going to be, as you know, this month we will be having guest preachers come. Alex will be speaking. Alex is the RUF minister at USC. And just one quick thing before I call Alex up. Um, when we, whenever we have our presbytery meetings, which is where all the local churches in our area gather together to do, to do the business of the church, one of, the, one of my favorite times is when we get to the, the portion where the RUF ministers give, the, give their reports of what's happening on the campuses. And I'm always so encouraged by the work they're doing, by the testimonies that um, they're able to give of, of students um, coming to Christ, students being changed by God's word. So we're very thankful for Alex and the work that he does out at USC. I know we have some Trojans in the room, um, but let's welcome Alex warmly. Thank you, David. Um, this uh, text that we read uh, is an um, unlikely character who God works through is uh, one of the most unlikely maybe in all of Scripture, definitely the Old Testament, uh, for God to come and find his presence and to work 
and that's uh, through this guy, Gideon, which I think is, uh, is really applicable for us, uh, living and doing ministry where we are living. Because, you know, on any given Sunday, uh, it, it's really almost comical uh, what you can do in Los Angeles County, uh, whether, you know, you could literally just drive down the 110 and decide whether or not you want to go to a Dodger game um, or, you know, there's an MLS game, and pretty soon we're going to have NFL football uh, going on both sides of the freeway. Uh, there's always amazing concerts or even the beach or endless restaurants and things that you would find uh, really significant and uh, interesting all across the culture. But what you would probably not from the, uh, the immediate eye think is the most interesting, fascinating uh, place to be is somewhere like this on a Sunday. And that it's very unlikely that anybody from the outside would view uh, Sunday afternoon worship as the most fascinating place to be. But what the life of Gideon teaches us is that God's presence always comes to the most uninteresting, unimmediate places to the human eye. And this is an amazing verse. He says in verse 12, God just comes to Gideon, to Gideon and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. And Gideon sort of responds to that, um, like maybe some of you would. He says, yeah, I, I don't buy that. Um, that doesn't sound plausible for someone like me. And it makes me ask this question that I want to ask with you uh, for the rest of our time. How do you know you have God's presence? Because right now in our culture, um, as the ever-growing ethical and political questions are coming up on a weekly basis and dividing us further and further and further. What's fascinating about them is how many people on both sides of the argument are doubling down on the rationale and the reasons for their side is because my side has God's presence with me. And that's why I vote this way, or that's why I think this way, or this is why I'm right. And so it makes us ask the question, do you know you have God's presence? And how do you know you have God's presence in this church and so what we can learn from this text and this story from Gideon is three, you can know. There's three things that you can know that will tell you not whether or not you have God's presence. That's one, you can know why he will have, why you will have his presence. Two, what his presence will come to do. But three, the, how he will make you meet his presence. Okay? So first, why we will have his presence, why he will come. Um, again, uh, we're told here in verse 12... It says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And then Gideon responds, pardon me, Lord, but if the Lord was with us, why has all this happened to us? So uh, Gideon's rather astonished. Uh, he's rather thrown off guard that God's presence could be with him. Now, why? Well, let me give you the context. And the chapters are so long, I didn't want to take the whole time to just read all of the text. But what we're told is a, there's a continual pattern in the book of Judges. That it says at the very beginning of every narrative, it says the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God would give them over to a people that would uh, rule over them and reign over them and take over their lives. And then the people would cry out and beg for God's deliverance. And so God would send a judge in for salvation. But then this pattern keeps going on and on and on. So what happens is then the people that God submits the Israelites to are get worse and worse and worse. And so it's so bad for Gideon and these people that we're told that Gideon is a sifting wheat in a wine press. 
Uh, now, why that's important is because that's sort of like uh, doing um, gardening in a basement. And it made no sense to do that because uh, if he would have done it in the open, what would have happened is the Midianites would have come and just taken everything that he had. They would have pillaged it all, and all of his work would be in vain. And so he has to do it, and it's so bad, he has to do all of his work in hiding. And it's to this man in this presence, in this moment, that the Lord shows up and just says, I'm with you, O mighty man of valor. Now here's what's fascinating about that. If you read the text, at no point does Gideon cry out for God. At no point is Gideon uh, a faithful worshiper of God. At no point is Gideon praying. At no point is Gideon doing anything to ask for God's presence. In fact, what we learn more about Gideon is when he comes, he first, he doubts it, the presence. He then doubts whether or not salvation will actually come to Israel. And then he's got to work through idols, which we'll look at in a few minutes, in his dad's front yard. And then when he doesn't believe, like, even a third time, he, he, he tests God and asks whether or not, you know, he can test him with fleeces and with wet, wet grass. And he goes on to doubt and doubt and doubt and doubt and doubt. And this is who God's presence comes to. And this is the first thing we learn. The reason God's presence will ever come to somebody or will ever come in a church is for no reason at all. See, the reason God comes into a, a group of people and he will come into your life is only because of grace and never because of your faithfulness, your fervor, or your pursuit of him. And that's really helpful um, for us as a community of people because it protects us. It protects us from being overinflated and it protects us from being sunk. See, if you understand that God's presence only comes to you because of his grace and because of his choice, then that will always protect you from being overinflated and having your heart built up on your own life. See, some of us make the mistake of Gideon, which was to say, God, if your presence was, was really with me, I would be able to identify that through the circumstances in and around me. See, what we often think, if our circumstances are going well, that means God is with us. And if our circumstances are falling apart, that means God is far from us. And what we believe behind that is the idea that God's presence only comes to us based on our obedience and our love towards him. And so if your life is going well and your circumstances are going well, what that does is it sometimes gives us a tendency to think, well, this is all happening because of what I know, or how good my theology is, or how often I pray, or how faithful or how obedient I've been, or my views and my convictions and my ethics. And what that can do is that makes you to look down on every single person and unable to empathize with anybody who's not able to live life the way that you're living. See, God's presence coming to us in grace should always protect us from having an overinflated heart to think anything in our life is going well because of how we are living it. But it also should protect us from being too deeply sunk. See, some of you have had a really hard year and had a lot of things that have been difficult and uh, hard to wrestle with, and you have gone through unnecessary self-condemnation and unnecessary depression and unnecessary doubt. See, often what we can do is we can look at our life and see things happening with our kids that have been difficult, or things with our job that are hard to uh, make sense of, or things uh, in other relationships that are just very hard, 
And one of the first things we can do is look inward and think, what am I doing to cause all this? Why would God be letting this happen? It's probably because I haven't been a good enough spouse. It's probably because I haven't been a kind enough parent. It's probably because I haven't put in enough hours at the office. And we often think it's either going well or it's going awful. Why? Because of us. But but the first thing you have to understand, if you want God's presence in your community and in your family and with yourself, is that his presence will be with you for one reason, because he himself chooses to be there. My friend, uh, Matt Trexler, he's like my colleague at UCLA, gave me this story. Um, that he, he sent me this podcast that told a story about this, this couple that was um, having a trying moment in their dating relationship. And um, the significance around it is because the guy for his birthday wanted more than anything to, do, to go skydiving. And he was out of control, excited about it. It was something he'd always wanted to do. And his girlfriend was not very excited about it. So he says, hey, like, if you're going to be in a relationship with me, we got to do exciting and engaging things. And she's like, I want the relationship. Okay, 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 we'll go. So they go to the, the, the place uh, to go skydiving. And they get there, and the guy who's going to take the plane up says, okay, we have one rule. If you get on the plane, you have to jump. So if you get up there and you get cold feet, tough luck, you still have to jump. So make up your mind now. So the guy, in the most unloving way, looks at her and says, you hear him, you hear him, you hear him? And she's like, okay, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll jump, I'll jump, I'll jump. So they get on the plane, and the plane starts to take off, and he is like out of control, excited, like this is the best day of his life. And she's about to vomit. And so they get up there to the top, and it's 10,000 feet, and he says, okay, it's time to go. And the guy can't even wait for the door to open. The door opens, and he just jumps and is so excited. And the girl sees him jump and immediately freaks out. And she goes to the back of the plane. And she's like holding onto the rail, screaming, begging not to go. But the problem is she's strapped to somebody twice her size who just walks to the front of the plane no matter what. And she's screaming and flailing about. And he just jumps off. And the whole way down, she's like, ah, terrified. I'm going to break up with this guy. I can't stand him. My life is over. And guess what happens? The guy lands safely. And then she lands safely. And it didn't matter that he was excited and he was thrilled and couldn't wait and enjoyed every moment. And that she was fearful, terrified, and hated the whole process. Because the reason that they were safe was because they were strapped to somebody else. See, the reason you will only be in God's presence is never because you totally get this and are so on fire for Jesus, or whether you have struggled and doubted and wrestled with this for years, it's because he will strap you to himself and make his presence available. And that's the first thing you have to know if you want God's presence, is that he will come only because of grace, because he will be there. But secondly, Let's look at the idea of what he will do when he actually comes. Look back in verse 13. We're told this when uh, the, the, Lord, the angel of the Lord shows up. Gideon responds, uh, but Lord, if you were really with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, uh, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. See, what Gideon is saying is, say, God, if you were really with us, 
and you really cared for us, then you would do the same thing that you did in the Exodus. You would take us out of this misery and you would fix our circumstances. And then the Lord responds in verse 14 when he says, go in strength, you have and save Israel out of the Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And then what we're told, here's what happens. As he makes these promises, and he goes and, and tells Gideon how he's going to deliver and save them. He says, Gideon, there's one thing that we have to deal with first. Take me to your father's house. So Gideon takes the angel of the Lord to his father's house, and out in the front yard, there's all these statues. There's all these gods that are, are sitting in the front yard. And see, what was going on in Israel is if you asked anyone in Israel, do you love Yahweh? They would say, yes, absolutely. And what are you doing about farming? Well, they would speak and show you this other God, this foreign God that they would pray to and devote their life to. What about uh, commerce? Oh, well, this other God. Well, what about uh, daily rain? Well, this other God. Well, what, what about our children's future? Well, this other God. And so what was happening is that Gideon and all of the Israelites had all these other idols going on in their life. And they're sitting there and saying, God, if you loved us and if you cared for us, you would get us out of these circumstances and change us. And God looks at Gideon and says, listen, before I get you out of these circumstances, I've got to make you into somebody who can handle any circumstance. Let me explain this. See, sometimes in life, we're in a tough situation. We pray and we long for God to deliver us out of the tough situation. And if it happens, we always go, God was faithful and God was caring and we know we have his presence. And listen, that is sometimes true. Because there's often times in life God lets people out of something and delivers them something, not actually because he loves them, but because he's giving them over to something. And so what happens, that's sometimes true, but what is always true is that if God's presence is with you, he will care more about the person in the circumstance than he will care about the circumstances for the person. See, it's almost like God is saying to Gideon here, Listen, Gideon, here's what I'm going to do. But before I heal the circumstances for you, I've got to heal you for the circumstances. Now, some of us hear this and think, why? Why is God this way? Like, if he's really loving and he's really caring and he's really nurturing, how in the world can he be a God who looks at these things going on in my life and not think the most pressing, urging thing in my life are these oppressive circumstances. How can he not care about that? Uh, I, it's been a couple months, but uh, have you, did you, you take your kids to see Toy Story 4? Um, or go see the movie? If you didn't see the movie, uh, I'm, this is not going to spoil it for you, but um, there's a character in there. Her name is Gabby Gabby. And Gabby Gabby, what happens, what her story is, is she's this old doll who has been in an antique store for years, and nobody will take her. And she's deeply sad, she's deeply lonely, and her greatest longing is for someone just to take her and to make her, her their doll. And she just thinks, if I could just have that, and then I know I'd be loved, then I know I'd be a somebody, 
and then I know that this like life would be okay. But the thing keeping her from that is that her noise box in the back of her uh, doll thing doesn't work. And so she meets Tom Hanks' character who has a working a noise box, and she thinks, if I can just get that, if I can just get that, then I'll be loved, and everything will be okay, and my life will be full of peace and joy and have meaning. And so eventually she gets it and takes it from Tom Hanks, and the movie builds to the scene where she's sitting there, and she's finally fixed, and she pulls her own string, and she thinks, this is it. I'm about to be delivered from the circumstances that I've always longed for. And I'm about to be healed. And a little girl hears the, the noise string being pulled. And the little girl walks to the Gabby Gabby doll. And she pulls the string and she says, hi, I'm Gabby Gabby. And I want to love you. And the girl looks at her and goes, eh, and throws her away. And in the movie theater I went to, there was an audible gasp. Because what happens to Gabby Gabby is she's put down and she's sadder and she's lonelier and she's more hurt than she even was before the moment happened. See, when Gideon says, God, if you love us and you care for us, you would get us out of these Midian circumstances. Here's what's going on. God is looking at Gideon and saying, I'm not going to set you up for something like that. See, all of us, like Gideon, think there are two, Gideon's learning this, there's two pressing things going on in life. The Midianites and the idols in my life, and all of us think the most pressing, urging thing in our life are the Midianites, are the external circumstances that are, that are, caught, that are in the way of my peace, that are in the way of my joy, that are in the way of my relationships thriving. And what Gideon is learning is actually what is the most pressing thing in his life is not the circumstances, but is the idolatry of his own heart. And what God wants to do in the most gracious, kind way is give his presence by dealing with the most urgent thing in his life. See, you will know God's presence is in your life, not just because things are getting better, but because you are getting better. I'll tell you, there's a place where Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. It's not a very well-known passage, but Jesus is teaching on the end times, and he says this. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying here? Because he's sort of saying, hey, you're going to be killed, but nothing's going to happen to you. Uh, People will hate you, but I'll protect you the whole way. How in the world is this? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, in life, there's a you, and then there's a real you. See, everybody in this room has a you that they've convinced the world of. With our looks, with our job, with our clothes, with our image. But underneath it, there's a real us that we've hid from most everybody else. That we very, very rarely let anybody in on. And that us, that part of us, that, that you, is built on something. 
And for the most part, what the human heart does is build it on anything that we can in this world that will affirm us and tell us we're okay and we're loved and we're approved in this world. But the problem with those things that we turn to and hang on to is that something in this world can take that away. And what Jesus says is that part of you, the real you, if you will give it to me, and if you will put it in my hands, nothing can happen to you. In fact, the more the world attacks it, all it does is sink you deeper into my presence and sink you deeper into my hands. And what Jesus says at the end, he says, by your endurance, you will gain your life. I think it's the, the New King James Version that says, in patient suffering, you will gain your soul. See, there's a part of you that is the most urgent thing in the world. And it's more urgent than your job, and it's more urgent than your bank account, and it's more urgent than your perception by other people. And if you will give that to Jesus, there's nothing in this world that could ever hurt that or take that away. I'll tell you about somebody who discovered this. Her name was Helen Rosevere. Helen, when she was about 19 years old or 20 years old, I think she was at like an intervarsity conference and heard John Stott speak and heard the challenge to give her life to Christ and to go give her life to foreign missions. And so she did, and uh, she moved to the, Be the Belgian Congo and was there for many years. Uh, she built a church. She helped start a school. Uh, she helped start a hospital. She worked with blind lepers for decades, uh, healing these people and, and educating them and doing ministry until 1964 in the ri uprising of the Belgian Congo when her town was ransacked and everything was burned and everything was destroyed. And in the midst of actually her own assault, she said she was screaming out going, God, where are you? How, like, if you were loving, if you were caring, how could you let this happen to me? How could you let this happen to all of this? And she said like a thousand bricks in a moment, it all came crashing down and she realized, you know what, this whole thing, this building this church, starting this school, this hospital, it's all been about me. See, this was all a way for me to build and construct my own life that people would find admirable. And I realized God took me into the Congo and had all this happen, not for me to save all those other people. He took me here to save me. And that's a woman who began to understand the presence of God. See, Jesus may let things happen to you in your life that will feel like his presence is far from you. But the reason he's happening is because he is saving the real you so that you can really identify and have his presence. And you can know, listen, a community that has Jesus' presence, it's not because everything is going right, it's because they themselves are repentant, needy, dependent people who think the biggest problem in the world is themselves and humbly welcome Jesus into that. If you want the presence of God, he will come for grace. Secondly, he will come for you. So thirdly, how do you meet and face that? Because 
the way he, you will meet his presence is only one thing. See, he has Gideon meet him in a particular way. And there's three clues to this. Um, we see this in uh, chapter 6, verse 15, uh, when Gideon responds to the Lord and says, Lord, like, how can you send me? How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. Uh, basically, Gideon says, I'm the most economically weak social outsider in Israel. It makes no sense for me to be the one, uh, to be the, the one that's going to redeem Israel. Uh, and then if you skip forward, there's another clue in chapter 7, verses 6, when we start to see um, about how God divides up this army. Because what happens with the Israelites is he says, okay, Gideon, get an army. And 32,000 people volunteer. So they go out, and right away, uh, God says, this is too big. So he says, ask people who are afraid. And so Gideon goes, hey, who would be afraid to go into battle? And 22,000 people go, me. And he goes, okay, you're all dismissed. So they all leave, and there's 10,000 people left. And God says, it's still too many. So here's what I want you to do. Take them down to the river and have everybody take a drink of water. And those who drink uh, on their knees still looking up, keep them. Those who drink like dogs, send them home. And I don't think there's any theological significance to that at all, other than this is God's way of just saying, we've got to figure out how to get this down to a number that is laughably small, where we know that numerically you have no chance in this battle. And then there's a third thing that happens, which is amazing, is they go up to get ready for battle. There's 300 of them. And in verse 17 to 19, Gideon says, okay, here's what you're going to do. We're going to go into this huge battle and uh, take this jar and then put a lamp in it and then take a trumpet and this will work. I mean, nobody had to think like, oh, this is a great idea. This will work, totally. And it just all had to be like, what in the world? And what all these three clues tell us is that God is saying, my presence requires one thing. For you to come in weakness. See, the third thing about the presence of God, whether or not you have it, know it, and can find it, is the only way you can meet it and find it is in your weaknesses. And for uh, some of us right now, if you feel spiritually stale, like for the last you know, year or something like that, um, you have sort of felt like uh, God is far off, uh, I've not really thought much about spirituality. Um, probably what you're doing is what I often do. And that's because most of life, we're leaning into our strengths. And this is the American way, right? Find out what you're good at. Find out what people will admire. Find out what people will compliment you about. And build all your time and resources into that. And that's how we go about life. And you'll find a lot of accommodation in our American culture doing that, but you won't find the presence of God very much. And leaning into your weaknesses, we can do it actually in two different ways. You can go out into the culture and you can find something that everybody loves and admires, or you can come into a place like the church and you can get real busy and you can volunteer for everything and you can have a face up front for all sorts of things and you can say all the right things you can sing all the right things. You can pray all the right things. And often what that does is it builds a facade that no one ever thinks you struggle with anything. And it's just another way to lean into our own strengths. It repels anybody 
who's having a hard time in life, and it also never, ever finds the presence of God. See, if you lean into your strengths, there's a danger and there's an irony to this. I mean, the danger, one of the dangers of leaning into your strengths is that sometimes you can mistake the presence of God with your gifts. See, there are hundreds of testimonies and stories of gifted people in the history of the church and in the Bible who did amazing things for God and never had his presence and never had God with them. But God still used them. And so one of the things that can happen is you can be such a gifted, useful person that all you do is lean into all your strengths and all the things that are admirable, and it dangerously keeps you from the presence of God. But the irony of leaning into your strengths is if you lean into your strengths, do you know that's the greatest weakness of your life? Because it keeps you from a God who welcomes your weaknesses and promises to use your weaknesses. See, God is with Gideon not in spite of his weaknesses, but because of his weaknesses. Because in his weaknesses, this is where the presence of God becomes so clear and so dependent and so vivid hour by hour. That when you lean not into your strengths but in your weaknesses, you both taste God and life becomes clear. J.K. Rowling a couple years ago, I think it was like maybe a decade ago, did um, uh, the keynote graduation speech at Harvard. And her lecture was called The Benefits of Failure. She said this, I was sitting in a similar seat that you are right now, graduating from Exeter University. I had measures of success in my life. A mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. The fears that my parents had for me and that I had for myself had both come to pass, and by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. So why do I call failure a benefit? Because failure was stripping away of the inessentials. I was set free because of my greatest fear had been realized. And I was still alive and I still had a daughter whom I adored. And I had an old typewriter, a big idea. And so rock bottom became a solid foundation on which I build, I rebuilt my life. See, what, if you will lean into your weaknesses, what it will do is it will strip away all the inessentials in life. And realize that you that you're personifying to the world, that's not the real you. And if you will lean into your weaknesses, Jesus will begin to strip away everything that you realize doesn't matter and show you there is a real you in there that he will give back to you and protect from everything in this world and let nothing ever harm it. And the only way you get clarity in that is never in the great things and the strengths of our life, but only in the weaknesses. So let me apply this for one minute. How do you lean into your weaknesses? Well, I, I, I think we can lean in um, you know, spiritually and corporately, or excuse me, personally and corporately. I mean, personally, look at the weapons that, um, that Gideon gives. Um, I mean, th- these are hysterically um, goofy. A jar of clay and a lamp. And here's what this clues us into. 
in life for you to seemingly have victories or what we think are victories. It often requires out in the culture uh, shame, manipulation, control, and power. And the things that we're sure are going to get us to the back of the line and kill us are things like honesty and vulnerability and forgiveness and turning the other cheek and things that we're sure that everyone even tells you you're getting walked all over. But see, through the eyes of the kingdom and around the presence of God, those are the weapons that heal the real battle. Because the battle is not out there. The battle is within your heart to figure out the real you. And what will win the battle are always the weapons of faith, of grace, of mercy, of honesty, of vulnerability, and of forgiveness. You lean into your weaknesses personally that way, but we can also lean into them corporately. See, when it, when it narrows from 32,000 to 300, one of the things I think that's telling us is that always the kingdom goes forward with the most unlikely, unthought of people. And I, in my job, traveling to churches and speaking to different groups of people, hear all the time from people, I don't think I can ever be a leader in my church. And I'll go, why? And they say, because I haven't read very much. Uh, or I don't know a lot about theology. Or th- I seriously struggle with this kind of addiction. Or I have really battled this kind of relationship problem. Or I have really, uh, it has no social significance at all. Like I never gather a group of people. Do you understand? If that's you, what this text says is there, you cannot think that in the eyes of the kingdom. That always it's the insignificant that God wants to use. Somebody asked one time, Brother Lawrence, they said, why do you think God picked you for this movement in church history? And he, he just laughed. He just laughed. And he bent over and he stood up and he said, I'll tell you why I think God picked me. Because I think God looked out in the world and said, who's the smallest, most unattractive, insignificant human being on this planet? I'll use him. Because if I use him, then nobody will think that any of this happened through him. They'll have to believe this only happened through God. See, how do you know you have the presence of God? It's when people start to know you through your weaknesses. They know your weaknesses. Does Long Beach know the weakness of this community? Do your family members know the weakness of you? Do your friends Does your spouse know your weakness? That's scary, right? You know, here's the assurance. Gideon had a fearful battle, but the angel of the Lord said he was with him. And Gideon wasn't sure, but you can be more sure. Do you know how you can be more sure? Because you have a better Gideon in Jesus. See, Gideon, he said, how in the world can I save Israel? I'm from the weakest, most unknown, poorest clan there is. When Jesus came on the scene and they started to tell people about Jesus, Nathaniel, he said to Philip, from Nazareth, 
from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So Gideon goes in to fight the battle with the most odd, unheard of weapons ever. But Jesus goes into the battle with the more strange weapon, the cross. And then Gideon goes in and is abandoned by almost 31,000 people. But Jesus, in the battle of all battles, is abandoned by everybody. And the major difference, actually, between Gideon and Jesus is that Gideon did all of that with the presence of God. But Jesus, on the cross, in the the climax of his battle, he just cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which tells you this, friends, listen, you can know for sure that you can go out in this room and lean into your weaknesses in the presence of the loving God will be with you at all times and in all moments because on the cross, when the person who should have had his presence was the most faithful and devout and who leaned into the weaknesses of all weaknesses, he lost his presence so that you could have it and give you a life that Paul says now you're to go out and lean into that weaknesses And he says the way the Christian life is, is taking that power, and he says it's like a jar of clay, so that everyone around you will know that all-surpassing power, it's not from you, but it's from the God who calls and comes to you by grace alone, and that will make you the light of the world. I'll close with this question from Charles Spurgeon when he preached on this text. Listen, Spurgeon says this to you, God does not need your strength. He has more than enough power on his own. He asks for your weakness. See, he has none of that himself. And he is longing, therefore, to take your weaknesses and use it as the instrument in his own mighty hand. Will you not yield your weakness to him and receive his strength? Amen. Let me pray. Jesus Lord, as a community, we want your presence, and we want, we want it deep, and we want it richly, and it is fearful the way you call us to do it, because it, it is not the way of the world. So, Lord, would you, uh, um, by your Holy Spirit, go with us in the valley, that we may have you and have all of you in our weaknesses, Lord dealing with the deep things of our life, the deep idols, the deep problems, Lord, and reminding whether or not we want that and whether or not we're sure about that, you are with us by grace and grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen.